Hey everyone, Shagun here. Before we start today's episode, I have one ask of my listeners. I've been doing some digging into how to grow the Inner Olympian to better reach more listeners, and one of the biggest ways I've found to grow the podcast is through show reviews. Reviews take less than 60 seconds, and they make a huge difference for podcasters like myself. Now, with that being said, it would mean the world to me if you could head on over to the Apple Podcast app and leave a review for the show. My goal is to go from 11 ratings, shout out to all 11 of you, which I have right now, to 100 ratings by the end of March. And with your help, I believe that we can do it. Thank you so much in advance. Now back to the episode. Maybe I don't have all the money in the world or don't have all the resources in the world or even a track in my instance. But if you have the will and, and, and the audacity to take on a task like that, um, when you do achieve excellence, it's just so unbelievably profound. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Inner Olympian, Inner Olympian, Inner Olympian podcast. You're, you're rocking with the best. You just put the needle. Hey everyone, it's Baladia Jamale. Hey, everybody, Jared Curry here. Hey, everybody, it's Marissa Papa Constantino here. Hey, everyone, it's Alicia Powell. Hey, I'm Pierce Lepage. Hey, guys, Alicia here. Hey, guys, this is Tia Bevan. Hey, guys, my name's Khadija. Make sure you check out the Inner Olympian podcast. I want you to head over to the Inner Olympian podcast. Check out the Inner Olympian podcast. Check out the Inner Olympian podcast. And I want you guys to check out the Inner Olympian podcast. I want you all to do me a favor and go check out the Inner Olympian podcast. What's going on, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Inner Olympian Podcast, where the goal is to inspire you and help you achieve the things that you actually want to achieve by tapping into your Inner Olympian. My name is Shego McIndey. I am a two-time Canadian Olympian, and I'm your host. Hey, listen, I believe that you don't need to go to the Olympics to be an Olympian. I believe that being an Olympian comes down to the way that you think, act, and live, and that everyone has the potential to tap into their inner Olympian by changing their mindset. This is episode 39. And hey, if this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. And thanks for listening. For those of you who've been listening for a while now, as always, I want to give you a big shout out. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for all the love and support. It means a lot. And I appreciate you. All right. In this episode, I get to sit down and chat with two-time Canadian Olympian, three-time international medalist, and three-time world championship finalist in the 4 by 100 meter, Jared Connaughton. Jared was raised in Canada's smallest province, Prince Edward Island, and played hockey and soccer competitively for nearly a decade before he embarked on his mission to pursue the sport of track and field. After only a few months of training, he became the nation's premier U19 200-meter athlete, garnering attention from a multitude of Division I institutions before ultimately settling on the University of Texas, Arlington. During his time there, he went on to become one of the most decorated athletes in the history of the Southland Conference, even being named as one of the top 50 greatest Southland Conference track and field athletes. He currently lives in Texas with his wife and two kids and is a head track and field and cross-country coach at Fort Worth Country Day. Some of Jared's accomplishments include, and Jared, if I miss anything here, you're going to have to forgive me, two-time Canadian Olympian, three-time international medalist, three-time world championship finalist in the 4x100, two-time Canada Games champion, 11-time national medalist, two-time national champion. His college career saw him earn all Southland Conference honors 15 times, become a seven-time Southland Conference gold medalist, three-time Southland Conference high point scorer two-time Southland Conference Athlete of the Year, four-time NCAA Midwest All-American as well as 200-meter All-American, 2006 Southland Conference Track and Field Athlete of the Year, both indoors and outdoors, 
top 50 greatest Southland Conference track and field athletes of all time. He's also the previous Canadian championship record holder in the 200 meters, which stood for just under 10 years. Multiple national team captain, uh, most notably at the 2012 Olympic Games. He's a maritime record holder in the 100 meters, 200, 4x1, and 4x2, as well as the only Islander in history to win two gold medals at the Canada Games. He is also a three-time PEI Lieutenant Governor Award winner, Halfpenny Award winner, Queen Silver Jubilee Medal recipient, and a multiple PEI Sport Award winner. It was really great to be able to sit down and chat with Jared and dive more into his story. You know, one thing that kept on popping up as we were talking was this theme of exceeding your expectations. You know, no matter the situations, no matter where you come from, no matter what people think about you, you have the ability and the power to exceed those expectations if you believe that you can. And so I just think that his journey is just a really great example of doing that, of exceeding your expectations because you can. And so to come from PEI, to go to Texas, to be able to accomplish everything that he accomplished, multiple Olympic Games, international medals, records, you know, just a really, really strong example of exceeding the expectations that others have of you and even exceeding your own expectations that you might have of yourself because it's possible if you really believe it is. And so I just want to give a big shout out to Jared. Thanks again for taking the time out of your day to sit down and chat. Um, really good to catch up with you. I know you guys are going to really enjoy uh, this conversation. Jared has really good stories and is a really good storyteller. So you're really going to enjoy the stories that he tells. And without further ado, here's Jared. All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Inner Olympian podcast. Man, I'm really excited for this episode today because I get to chat with, for those of you on the Canadian sprint scene, another one of the OGs of the Canadian track and field sprint scene in the Canadian track and field world. And I'm super honored to have Jared Connaughton on the show today. And Jared, thanks for taking time out of your day and away from your, well, not away from you because your son is done playing his game, but from your son's flag football game to sit down and chat with me today, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here, man. I'm I'm really excited to uh, to delve into this conversation and and sort of walk down memory lane. It's gonna be it's gonna be cool, I think. So this is so funny enough. I my first time and my first encounter with Jared was back in 2006, and that was I also believe Jared's kind of breakout year in track and field, which we'll get to later on. But that was like my first experience, kind of running into Jared, and it happened um, at the Canadian track and field championships for that year. And the four by 100 meter relay team had come to do a bit of a camp beforehand. And Jared was there with everybody else. I remember it because he had his cornrows in at the time. <laughs> and I just remember, like, we had a really short conversation. I don't rem- really remember too much of it. I just remember this one moment, right, where we're kind of standing around the 200 meter line and you kind of asked what my 200 meter personal best was at the time, which I think was, I think, 2240 something or, yeah, no, 2240 something. And then you're like, hey, you know, that's not bad. You know, just keep it up type thing and like a bit of encouragement. And I was just like, man, this is this is kind of crazy. It's kind of cool. And I think you were one of the first people to, to really say anything to me because around that time, I was just hanging out around Glenroy a lot and just kind of annoying him. And but just like being in that environment with everybody. So that was kind of, that was a kind of surreal moment for me. So I appreciate that, man. That's kind of what helped me uh, keep going. I'd, it would be a miss to say that I remember that conversation. But <laughs> I'm, for, for for posterity's sake, I'm going to say that, yeah, I remember that very well. <laughs> no, you know what? I, I do remember the camp because, 
you know, it's funny you say OG because I was like a young, I think it was 20, 21 at the time. So, you know, I was still sort of fresh off of the, um, and I was like in the midst of my, my collegiate season. Kind of funny enough about that, about that meet. That was my first senior championships. Oh, for real. And it, and it came on the heels of, uh, so I was down at, at the NACAC in Dominican Republic, 23 and under championships. And um, I came home with a bronze medal, but what a lot of people don't know about that meet was, um, well, how would you know, right? Unless I told you, but um, <laughs> like warming up for the 200. So there's three rounds of the 100, three rounds, of the 200 in two days. So there were three rounds each day. Crazy, crazy, crazy format. But there were some really big names there. There was you know, Aries Merritt, Derek Atkins, Richard Thompson, um, just naming a few. Uh, Natasha Hastings, you know, there's some, there's some big names for sure. Anyways, I was warming up for the 200 and uh, it was like this strangest, strangest thing. So just painting a picture, this was at the, the, same, the same site that hosted the 2003 Pan American Games. But it looked like it hosted the the nineteen thirty three Pan American Games. Like it was, <laughs> someone dropped a like a like a nuclear bomb like thirty miles away, and it was like where they evacuated the city or something. It was crazy. There was mm. it was like raw sewage that was like being pumped out of the one of the restrooms like adjacent to the track, and it was like nauseating just to be over there. Um, there were like stray dogs running across. It was crazy. I guess the point of the story was, is as I was warming up, just in like a two-point stance to do my final acceleration before the call room, and someone had moved a hurdle into my lane, sort of unbeknownst to me. And I, I took off and it was probably 10 meters in front of me. I didn't even notice it. Oh, and I smashed into it. And it was on the backside of the hurdle. So it sort of stood me up. And I felt this like just absolutely agonizing pain in my hip. I said, I can't, I, I mean, what am I going to do? So I limped around for a little while. It sort of dissipated jumped in the blocks. I didn't run as well as I should have, but nevertheless, I came home with a bronze medal. And when I returned back home, I was actually returning back to PEI. I said, I got to get this thing looked at. And uh, lo and behold, I actually sustained a, a, a pretty significant hernia. So I went to the Canadian championships in 2006 with, with a hernia and was just running on sort of guts and stupidity and uh, basically running on adrenaline is best way I can put it. I had mm -hmm. like a girt, like a girdle on and like three pairs of tights and it was just, it was awful. So when I returned back to Texas, um, so I, I won a silver medal at that, at that Canadian championships behind Brian Barnett, went back down to Texas and, and got it and got it surgically repaired, you know, but I didn't begin training for my senior year, which was the following season until uh, middle of middle of November. So I was way, you know, really, really far behind the eight ball going into my senior. So I didn't compete qu quite as well in, in 07, you know, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit again, but 07 was, you know, cause you, you mentioned Glenroy and I, I revered Glenroy's tutelage and mentorship and friendship, to be honest with you really highly fast forward the tape. I, I get selected for the, uh, for the Pan American games team is, is, truly an alternate. There was, there were several guys ahead of me at the time who on paper probably should have been uh, given that spot to compete. But as, as the sport goes, there was injuries and there was, there was some politics that were going on and it just opened up an opportunity for, for me to really get appointed for that uh, third leg role. And, you know, we wound up coming home with a silver medal as a result of that performance in, in Rio at the Pan American Games, they they selected me for the for the World Championship team in, in Osaka, Japan. So we we did our staging camp in Singapore 
and uh, and then we we flew up to Osaka, and waiting around and just sort of being a bystander for for the, basically for the seven eight days or whatever the championship was because the the four by one um, was basically the the final day that the heats and uh, and the final were on the same day at that championship. I you know I think I think looking back at it, it was such a learning experience for me, but I don't I don't think I was ready for that arena for that environment yet. As a result of that, we we just had sort of a Anson and I had a sloppy exchange, and then I brought it into uh, Neville Wright, who I hadn't really worked with before. He replaced Ryan Barnett um, sort of at the last minute, and that exchange went went terribly wrong as well. So we get back to the hotel, and I'm sitting in this, and I mean the hotel room is probably ten feet by seven feet. I mean it's like a closet. It was unbelievable how small it was. But I was sitting at a desk writing sort of reflecting on, on the season and, you know, finishing up my collegiate eligibility and so on and so forth. And I, I heard this knock on the door. So, you know, I, I, I answered it and it was Glenroy. And I remember him and it was sort of dimly lit in the room and he walked in and he's got that sort of baritone voice and that sort of all, that, that big presence, you know, and he, he is a matter of fact, was like, Hey, um, uh, you know, colleague of, of mine and I watched the, watched the video and it looked like you were moving your hand around. And as a result of that sort of mental error, the, you know, the exchange was botched and that was all she wrote. And he said to me before he left, like, Hey, you know, I really like your work ethic and your attitude, but you know, we're really looking for a leader in this team. This is what we need. We need someone to sort of emerge in the next wave of, of sprinters to, to take on that leadership role. And, you know, if you, if you put your ducks in a row and you really get your nose to the grindstone, you, you can do that for this program. And uh, for the, for the whole season of 2008, you know, Olympic year, I used that notebook. It was actually in the sort of welcome kit that you receive when you, when you come to the hotel. And I used that as my training log and, you know, logged, every minutia, every minor detail, seemingly minor detail through the entire season. And I still have it. I still actually go back and, and, and read that and, uh, and sift through some of the highlights of that season, including that little sort of note to myself. I know, I know that's a, a very weird, uh, non-sequitur sort of um, translation from, from meeting you in, in, in Ottawa 2006, but that was the most pivotal phase of my life in so many ways was that sort of 2006 through 2007 was, was the make or break for me. And it, and it turned out to, to be, like I said, sort of serendipitous. So, um, yeah. like I said, I don't remember the, the conversation you and I had, but I remember that camp and, and, and the impact and how profound it was on, on the rest of my career. That's crazy because, you know, you, when I think about it and you know, I think about your time, I think about what, like nine seasons roughly at, on, on the senior team, from 2000, I guess, 6, 2007 to 2014. That's probably one of the things that I think a lot of people who are on the team would label you as like the leader and for sure, you know, someone to be like, you know, Jared is coming out today not to play. So just make sure you're on your A game, you know, he's coming into you. Or if you're, if you're on the mark and leaving him, like, you know, you kind of set the mood, kind of set the tone. And so that's pretty interesting because for sure I can say that I think you probably stepped into that role. Um, as someone who kind of just keeps quiet and is just watches what's going on. And um, yeah, I think for sure that's something that you probably uh, stepped into, maybe knowingly or un- unknowingly, I don't know, but for sure stepped into. From, from that moment, maybe go back a bit more because you're from PEI, 
where you kind of got your start from. A lot of people probably don't know that. And so it's kind of, it's kind of almost, it's not what you would probably expect. I think a lot of people would expect a lot of sprinters from Ontario and from Ontario being Toronto. So I guess I want you just to, you know, kind of take us, you know, quickly from you playing hockey to, I guess, you know, 2007, 2006, track and field, you know, Jared Connaughton training for the Olympic Games and trying to like, you know, leave a mark. Yeah. So you know, I think, I think you nailed it. Track and field on, on, on Prince Edward Island is about as popular as, um, it's hip hop music. Was, you know what I mean? Like basically, uh, anybody that, that, uh, was in and around track, you know, this, this sums it up perfectly. You know, Adam Vancouver did, right. He's, he's a, he's a, a kayaker for, for Canada. He won a, won a gold medal in Beijing and he served as chef de mission for, for, um, Canadian Olympic uh, Committee um, in in Vancouver and so on and so forth. It's kind of a big name in, in Canadian athletics. Well, he told me one time that he got a really late start to sport, and he tried out for hockey, got cut. Tried out for soccer, got cut. And he tried a bunch of different things and just couldn't land. And he said he tried out for for cross country and he made it because everybody makes the cross country team, you know. And for me, it was like. I, I was fast. I, I could run well on the soccer field. I could skate really fast. And track and field, when I was a kid, was a way to get out of school for a day. And when I showed up to the track, a dirt track behind a, my high school, literal dirt track, I, I often won races. But it never dawned on me like, that this was going to be what I was going to do. Right? Mm-hmm. I was going to be an Olympian in track and field. And I, if you can imagine, Shigan, like, there are, I mean, it's a, it's a six lane track. The, the lines are hand painted on with like a chalk roller, like they use for a baseball field. And the starting blocks are literally hammered into the ground with like a six inch railroad spike. It's, it's amazing, really, truly amazing. And that's, that's where I got my start. But my real sort of kind of the blessing in disguise being from a small place is that when you're identified as, as talented, so to speak, you're offered up opportunities that if I were from Ontario, my abilities may or may ha- not have been noticed, right? Because you're, you're facing a huge crowd. Where in PEI, there wasn't a huge crowd. And there was very little culture in the sport. So when I ran well at the provincial meet, I was essentially provided an opportunity to compete at the Legion Championships. And at the time, Legions were two athletes per province. And I think the most exciting part was that there was a camp. There was like a like a technical camp. And then there was a speaker that would come in and present and so on and so forth. And I actually got that opportunity in, in 1999. I competed at the Legion Championships in Sudbury, Ontario. And that's, you know, Richard Adubabi was there. And there was like, there were some oh, names that, that, that's, <laughs> that still, that still uh, maintained um, their, their place in the, in the national track and field uh, sort of pantheon. Um, I finished seventh in the 100, eighth in the 200. And when I mean zero training, and just put this in perspective for you, that that, that meet in, in Sudbury, Ontario in 1999 was the first time I had ever seen or competed on a synthetic track before. So it's, it's literally from the dirt track <laughs> on an airplane. And the, the spikes that I wore were, were so ground down and worn down because you know, running on a, on a gravelly dirt track, you know, it's like, it's like abrasive. 
when you checked your spikes in the lady, I'll never forget this. The lady looked at the spikes and like gasped. She was like, Oh, like, you know, and, uh, a year later I went back to the Legion championships and came back with two silver medals. Um, was actually beaten by a fellow maritimer, um, Gabe LeBlanc and the, I'm not related to Mike, but same province. And then really the p- most pivotal year in my, in my development chagrin was in 2001. I, um, same thing. My goal in the season was to break 11 seconds. I was training a little bit more then, but I was still really a hockey player, soccer player. And I was trying to fit in track practice. I was, I was at track practice usually once a week. So I went to the Canadian legions and goal was to break 11 seconds. And I ran 11 and I finished fourth and finished fourth again in the 200 ran 22, 26. So, you know, normally that's, Hey, that's, you know, it's disappointing not to, to achieve your, um, your seasonal goal, uh, but I felt pretty good about it. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know exactly how to look at this, but the Canada games were about two weeks after the Legion Championships. This was in London, Ontario at uh, Western Ontario University. And mind you that the Canada games at the time was 23 and under. I'm 16 years old. So I line up against some guys who, you know, were collegiate with D1 guys, right? Mm-hmm. Running 10-3, 10-4, 21-1, And to say that I got beat was, is an understatement. In fact, I think I finished 22nd of 23rd of three or something like that in the hundred. And I think 20th or 19th over 200. So it was like, it was, it was in, it was the first time in my life as an athlete, I felt embarrassed or felt outmatched or outclassed or outworked. It was the first time I ever felt that. I flew back to, to PEI, but I remember, and this, this resonates with me today. I'll never forget it. The air, so to speak, in the airplane was one of like jubilation, of triumph, of excitement, despite the fact that the PEI contingent went medalless. Like we didn't win a single medal. And in fact, we were in most of our games, volleyball, basketball, soccer, you name it, were like embarrassed. But yet there was still this like sense of pride. And I remember my dad picking me up and sort of giving me like, geez, that was, that was ugly, you know, look. And I told him about what I heard in the airplane was this like, don't worry, like athletes from PEI aren't meant to, to make waves. We're just there to be like lane fillers or, or to be participants. And a month later, I quit hockey, I quit soccer, and I put all, all my chips in uh, on this track thing. And uh, my coach uh, had just moved back. In Calgary, he had won a gold medal in the bobsled in the Nagano Olympics. And I was identified as, as like an up-and-coming talent, so to speak. So I went from, like I said, fourth place at the, at the na- at National Youth Meet with one day of training to, to training four days a week, five days a week. And uh, a year later, I was you know Canadian junior champion and, and Canadian youth champion. And that was, that was the moment that sort of set me off. That was when I got on the radar with, you know, with NCAA schools. And uh, that, again, that was, that was the jump off spot for me was the biggest sort of defeat of, of my life, so to speak, up to that point was, was the deal breaker for me. I didn't want to feel like that again. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I took it upon myself to say like, never again. So um, I guess the rest is history. I signed with University of Texas Arlington and scholarship and, as they say, the rest is history. That must have been a pretty big jump going from PEI to Texas yeah. just in general. That's how big Texas <laughs> is. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> okay. So I got I to gotta paint this story. So I'm, my birthday's in July. 
and international orientation day is, is August is August 3rd, 4th, something like that. You know, my, my, my dad is from, from Boston and um, it's so expensive to fly from PEI. The airport is tiny. There's one terminal, there's one gate, there's one landing strip. There's usually like five flights in, five flights out a day. So like, it's really expensive to fly anywhere from PEI. So the deal was we were actually going to drive over the American border and visit my dad's family and have like sort of a sayonara good luck down in Texas. So that was the plan. So unbeknownst to me, when I crossed over the American border driving, I was supposed to sort of report to the border customs agent. And he was meant to like basically punch in my, my visa Mm. into the, into the system. And now I officially become a resident of the United States on what's called a, I think it's an F1 student visa. So I didn't, of course I didn't do that. So I get on the plane down to Texas and a few days later, you know, I go to the international orientation. So I, I, I show up and the guy's like looking through my paperwork and he's like, Hey, why, this document isn't signed. So he went under the database and was like, yeah, you're not in the system. Like, I guess, I guess there was an error at the border and I told him the situation. So what ended up happening was I had to, I had to leave the country. <laughs> I had to check, check back in at border and customs and then report back to school in order for me to be eligible to, to be enrolled in the university. Well, at the time, the, the, the Canadian exchange rate was 68 cents to the dollar, 65 cents to the dollar. So, Perfect. you know, uh, uh, <laughs> an overnight or, or like a 24 hour, like, hey, I'll fly to Toronto, fly back. It was like 1500 bucks. So what's the alternative? Well, you can go to Mexico. So <laughs> I begged a, a guy who I was rooming with. I had moved into the dorms. I had met this guy for a day. And I convinced this guy's dad to drive him to Mexico. We drove ten <laughs> hours to uh, to Brownsville, Matamoros, which is like the <laughs> next to Juarez is like the number one drug trafficking place in the world, right? Oh um, my the the stipulation is I had to be I had to be in uh, Mexico for one hour for some reason. So we drove around. We it was like literally like a, a roundabout. Right? So we, we looped back around and we just waited because this guy's like, I'm not going up. I'm not going out there. There's no way. Right. So we're just going to wait until the hour's up and then you can go get checked in. So I walked into this border and customs, you know, after the hour elapsed, I went in and these guys are looking at me like, this is the craziest damn thing I ever heard. Like a Canadian checking in through Mexico. Like I, this is crazy. So they're like, get in the back. Right. <laughs> so I was escorted into this like picture the, these, these, these poor children that are being ripped away from their families at the border. That's the same processing um, center that I was processed in. Right. So this is, this is crazy. Right. So I picked a number and I'm waiting, praying. And like, it was, it was one of the scariest moments of my life. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> so I mean, I don't know. I was in there maybe 10 minutes and I hear this, like this ungodly screaming this woman screaming, like, and I mean screaming. And next to this like holding room that we're in was a hallway and it was, there was, you know, there was windows into the hallway. So you could see people crossing, passing through the hallway. And this woman, she looked no, no older than 15, 16 years old. She was covered. I mean, covered in mud, handcuffed and being led into this, this detainment area in the back. Mm. 
And a minute later, uh, a border customs agent was carrying these two babies, like six month old babies, also covered in mud and water, you know? So she and the babies like jumped into the Rio Grande and, and attempted to, to, to swim across the, the river to get in the United States and they were, and they were intercepted. So I'm sitting there going like, this is not going well, I'm gonna get this, you know? So the guy, so the guy, you know, is like a federale, you know? big mustache. He said, Hey man, whatever number I was, come on up. He processed it. He goes, you wouldn't believe this, but I just got an email from a guy in Calais or like we call it Callis, but Calais, Maine vouching for you saying that it was his era that he didn't process your, your visa. So I'm going to take, cause he's a colleague of mine. I'm going to take his word for it. And he stamped my pa- and my passport and visa. And off I went and that was it. So that's crazy. I, I still, to this day, don't know how that guy found out that I didn't get processed mm. still to this day. And I, I, I ran out of that place as fast as I could <laughs> and jumped in this guy's car and we went and had a bite to eat and spent, spent the night in some dive border town hotel. And the next day I was enrolled in school and like the rest is history, man. But that is the uh, story of my life. Nothing happened smoothly. <laughs> everything's got to have a story. You know what I mean? So it's just the nature of it, man. I find it so interesting because, you know, we kind of just been chatting and it seems like these moments for you have been popping up of like, okay, here's a moment. Like, for example, you know, you're talking about that moment um, with Glenroy. Are there any other moments that you probably call to your head being like, this was a critical moment for me that stands out that like, you know, you'll never forget. You know, uh, yes. And I have to fast forward the tape a long ways, but so 2007, sort of I've alluded to that, right? We had some sort of infighting and some politicking and some injuries and lack of leadership, ostensibly. Um, a year later, we made the final. So in, in Beijing, you know, the relay team made the final for the first first time globally that the Canadian team had made a final since... 1997, you know, and the, the team obviously won, won gold in 97 in Athens. And 37-83, it was like, you know, it was an all-star team for the most part. Um, but there was, a, there was a major hiatus between 97, because 99 was like, was the end of the era, right? It mm-hmm. was the Trevino Betty, Glenroy Gilbert, um, you know, mishap in, in yeah, Seville. Insane. Yeah. And in Sydney, you know, the, the team, um, the team missed the final again in Edmonton, you know, the, the world championships on home soil, we don't get a team in, um, 2002, I think that the Canadian team was fourth at the, at the Commonwealth games. Oh, three, we missed it. Um, and then Oh four, cause you know, you mentioned Charles Allen, um, you know, the, the Canadian team came really close in 04, right? They were ninth, just missed the final. We're in 30, 38, 67, missed the final, which is a, which is a quick time to miss, to miss a final with. Um, 2005, they missed it again in Helsinki. 2006, you know, there was, they, they won a bronze medal kind yes, of. Yes, that's a, right. A, a couple of games. Yeah, it was kind of a crazy race. A half yeah. The teams got recued. <laughs> I think he, uh, EJ basically came to a complete stop to receive the baton from um, Nathan Taylor, and they still wound up winning bronze. That's the right place at the right time, like i.e. St. Saint, Kitts Saint and, and, and Dagu, for instance. Perfect, perfect example of it. Hmm. 2007, you know, we won Pan Am Silver, but 
um, you know, botched the exchange in Osaka. So we missed another global final. So there was this real, like, we got to get this together, man. And, and with all due respect to Glenroy, you know, he was, he was like searching for whether or not like we had what it took, whether it was coaching, whether it was, it was the infrastructure, whether it was the, the plan, so to speak. Um, so when we broke through in Beijing, made the final, finished sixth, you know, retroactively, we've been bumped up to fifth place, but it still felt really unfulfilling. The, you know, doing what we did in the semis was great, but we really, I, I think we left a shot at a medal on the table. Mm. You know, um, yeah. the Jamaicans obviously ran away with it, but nevertheless, it still didn't feel. 2009, it clicked. And 2009, it, it, it started to click again. And we, you know, we made the final in Berlin, finished fifth, ran 38 39. And it was okay, we're starting to get the ball rolling. You fast forward the tape to to um, to Delhi in a Commonwealth Games a year later. We we nearly broke the Commonwealth Games record in the semifinal around thirty eight forty five. I remember that, yeah. And uh, and then Sam Sam sustained the hip flexor injury in the semi, and he didn't really divulge that information to us. You know, just the nature of of a you know he's the fastest guy in the country, and he wanted to be a part of it, but you could tell he was hampered, and uh, and then. You know, we barely got the sticker on. We wound up disqualifying. We ran out of the zone and it was, it was all for naught. 2011, kind of the same thing. You know, we're running pretty well. Justin's starting to come into his own. Um, I, had a, I had a good, really, really good early phase of the season. I was start, starting to wane a little bit towards the end. But uh, Gavin was on, was on the backstretch and, and, and ended up pulling his hamstring with about 30 meters to go before the exchange. And so we... We got the pass off, but we wound up last during a heat. Again, another another global final that we missed. Again, going into this St. Kitts and Nevis team, you know, wins a bronze medal because of 10-pin bowling that happens in the final exchange. You know, half half of the guys falling down and jumping over each other and stuff. It's crazy, right? You gotta be in the final. You gotta be there. You gotta be in the final. Yeah. Right. You gotta be in the final. So a year later, and you remember this, something clicked, something changed, right? There was there was like a precedent set that we we met up in um, in Miami, Miramar, Florida, in February, I believe. And from that date all the way to London, we met oh six seven times. Right, we were in we were in Rome, we were in Ottawa, we went mm-hmm. to Monaco, we went all over the place. And the pip the again the, the really touchstone moment going into London, the breakthrough, so to speak. Well, there's really two, uh, and they happened within 24 hours of each other. Was going to Weinheim and, and, <laughs> yes. have, and, and having two teams, right? Um, having having two teams. So there's eight guys, right? So that was the first time we had ever been able to assemble eight or two teams with eight quality guys. Yeah, eight quality guys, 100%. And we didn't really even know. Was it an A team? Was it a B team? Was it a red team, white team? Like we didn't, there was no distinction between those two squads. So there was, there was a lot left uncertain. Uh, but what really resonated with me was one, the German team killed us and set a national record, right? 3802. Do you remember where they were shooting the fireworks off they were in the middle of the day? Cheerleaders. <laughs> and the crowd, like the half of the crowd, like stormed onto the track and Going it was like, nuts. this was it's crazy. And we jumped on it. I'll, I'll never forget this. We jumped on a train back to, to common, you know, our holding site or whatever you want to call it, our staging site. 
And we were kind of like a miss. We had no idea who was going to be on the team. I think at that point in time, we were ranked 11th in the world. Um, and when we got into, into the little village area, the, the lobby, if you, you walk through the doors, painting a picture, you walk through the doors and to the right is sort of the dining hall. To the left is like the, the, the reception desk, but just off to the side is sort of a small meeting area. And there was, there was the Olympic um, opening ceremony on television you know, for, the, for the London Olympics. So it became real. Like, oh shit, it's okay. No more playing around. No more what ifs. No more my bads. Like, we got to get this figured out, right? Mm-hmm. The next morning, I think it was nine o'clock in the morning, we met up. And Dana Way, you know, our biomechanist, had been with our squad for a while. And he, um, he basically, he broke it down to brass tacks and said like, hey, historically, you have to run this time in order to win a, win a medal. And considering your personal bests, your personal best splits, season's bests, and, and then and the 50-meter fly that we used as sort of a, a modality that was our standard. My prediction based on this metric is you guys can run um, 38.06. And if you do that, as per the, as per the, the, the sort of the diametrics of, of historical four by ones at, a, at an Olympic games, you guys should win a, win a medal. And that was it. And we were like, okay. The ultimate question was who the hell was going to run and, and who was going to run and in what leg. And, um, you know, as a captain of the team, I, you know, should, I was appointed a captain. I mean, a captain of, the, captain. of the Olympic team. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I still didn't know if I was going to be on the team or not. I had no idea. So there was a lot of uncertainty. So finally we got together and we, we ran our individual races and, you know, Aaron Brown, for instance, is a you know, young guy and misses the final by one spot in the 200. I reckon, you know, if you ask him, that was probably a major pivotal moment for him, you know, getting that close to the final, but not being appointed to a relay spot, you know, I would, I would bet that that's probably a major motivation for him. Um, but being named to the team and, uh, and going out in the semi and, and, and coming, you know, coming off the track with a 3805 and, and remembering like, shit, you know, Dana said we'd have to run 3806 to win a medal and we just ran 3805. So we're, we're poised to do it. Right? Mm-hmm. And that, so again, you know, going into London, or sorry, pardon me, going into the final, it was, there was these highlights on highlights on highlights, right? Greg Rutherford, you know, hometown boy wins the gold and, and um, Jessica Ennis London wins gold and Mo Farrow wins gold. And then David Rudisha smashes the record and Usain Bolt is doing his thing, 963 and 100, 932, you know, 1932 and, um, you know, Karani James. And it was so all these highlights, the women break the world record in the four by one the day before, the day earlier. And it was just all these signs pointing to this sort of epic finish, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and the four by one being the culminating event of the games was, um, it was a lot. I think the, the, the thing, you know, that, cause that's a whirlwind and, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to this in a second, but I haven't really told a lot of people about this. It's kind of an intimate moment, but, um, do you remember we were issued like a gold pin, like a Canadian maple leaf pin? Yeah. Yeah, and it was sort of like the coveted them with every Canadian. Everybody wanted it. Yeah, try try to trace your memory if you can remember this. But there were there were volunteers. They had the purple and sort of reddish maroon Adidas shirts on with hats. Do you remember that? Yeah. Well, this is the final event at the Olympic Games. This is this this is the we're blowing out the candles, the proverbial candles, so to speak. So the so the warm up track is basically a ghost town. 
Um, but there's a young man, he's probably 15 years old, um, has, has, um, has Down syndrome. And his mother was sort of accompanying him. And this, and this, I remember, I'll never forget this, this young, this teenager was stacking hurdles, was moving hurdles around. And um, I walked over to him. I kind of, I came, you know, gave him the pat on the back and said, Hey, you're doing a really good job. I've noticed you the last couple of days, kind of nodded his head and said, thank you. And I'm, you know, getting my spikes ready and um, the tent sort of opens up. And uh, it's Glenroy, and he goes, "Hey, Jared, um, I want you. This this woman wants to say something." So I walked out, and she, this woman's got tears in her eyes, and she said, I "Want to thank you so much. Like this, this is my son. And this has been sort of something that you know he's he's dreamed about to to be a part of this, and it's totally getting him out of his shell. But he's very very shy, and you're the first person um, all day that's acknowledged him. So I want to thank you for that." And I reached into my pocket and I said, like, hey, buddy, come over here. And I gave him that gold pen. You know, this is good. This is mojo, man. This is good vibes here. You know what I mean? So, you know, we go out onto the, onto the track and it's really surreal, you know, just going into the stadium as a team. And that moment where you're asked to, you sort of like first leg athlete, come with me. Second leg athlete, come with me. Third leg athlete, come with me. And, and the team is sort of divided up. Yeah. And remembering that moment, like walking through the curtain into the stadium, and it felt different than it did in the 200. Totally different. It felt different than it did in Beijing. It was, I don't know. It, the stadium, it sounds really weird, but the stadium felt really small. And the track felt larger than it normally did. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes just, sense. I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. The discus cage, hammer cage is sort of blocking the first exchange. So, you know, gun goes off, crowd goes wild. I'm in my stance and I see Gavin whipping around the corner and handed off to, to, to Shay. And Shay's always liked taking a, a pass from Shay because he doesn't turn over real fast. No. So <laughs> I. <Same here. laughs> I, it's, it's easy. It's easy to sort of gauge his approach because you get a guy like, you know, I took a pass from Andre once and even Anson, you know, Anson being a tall guy, didn't have a huge stride. So he had, you know, he had fast turnover. It's hard to gauge actually how far away he is. Right. So, you know, Shay hits the mark and I take the pass. Johan Blake feels like a mile away, but I can feel I can feel the Japanese team like breathing down my neck. And, and just as I, you know, rounded the corner, I, I, I see that Japanese guy kind of disappear. And the pass between Justin and I the day before was, was stretched. It was like, I, I had to reach for him, you know, but in the final it was, it was crisp. And, um, you know, that, you know, that feeling when you pass a baton and you can maintain your rhythm and frequency and you can yeah. keep running. That's yeah. exactly what happened. He runs through the finish line and, uh, you know, we're waiting for the times to come up and we're looking like almost being startled, seeing 3684 on the clock, like 36 seconds. They just ran 36, you know, 36 seconds. It's just unfathomable to, to this day. But seeing the, we ran 3807 and, um, and seeing us as a bronze medal spot, it was like the most jubilant triumphant thing that i've ever had ne next to seeing you know seeing morgan my my firstborn son <laughs> um 
up until that point, that was the most jubilant I've ever, I've ever felt in anything I've ever done. And then, you know, I, I, I don't know the timeline exactly. I can't be for certain, probably four, three, four minutes when, when, when the official announcement was made that we were disqualified. The moment right before the official announcement was, was revealed, I was looking at the far end, just underneath the, the Olympic torch was, was the replay board. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching the replay. And I noticed that I was really close to the line. And I was like, shit, you know, like that feeling in the pit of your stomach, like, ah. Yeah. And then Gavin, so uh, Shay and Justin were were much farther away, almost like um, at the 300 meter start line. They were, they were pretty far away from us. And Gavin was kind of like pretending like he was punching me, you know? And he was like, yo, man, bronze medal. And I was like, yeah. And he said to me, he goes, what's the matter? You look like you just saw a ghost. And I looked over at him and I said, I think I might've stepped on the line. And I remember what he was like, no dog. No, no, no. It'll be all right. It'll be all right. It'll be all right. <laughs> and then, te- you know, 15 oh. seconds later, it got, you know, revealed. Mm. So that whole thing happened and, and the rest is kind of a blur. Um, you know, you go through the media paddock, you see the, the Trinidad team walking from the back, back onto the track to do their victory lap. And it's just like, ugh. I don't know where Gavin went. I don't know where Shay went. I don't know where Justin went. It was like, so you go through the media and then there's this long, ominous walk by myself back to the, back to the warm-up track. And I remember you and Molly Killenbeck and you in particular coming over to me and you kind of like looked at me and you were like, I don't, I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember this? Yeah, I remember this. Um, you were like, it's okay, man. And then you like, you hugged me and I just wept. Like just began, and then Molly kind of came in and was like hugging us both. Do you remember that? Yeah. And uh, and then I, Glenn Rose gone. Um, Carm yeah, Stillo, Carm, they were all gone. I, I it was it was just hard, and I don't to this day I don't remember how I got back to the village. I called my uh, called my parents in our rendezvous spot. My wife and my parents were in London. Our rendezvous spot was in uh, was at the mall across from the village. I'm like at a breakneck pace trying to get over there. So we go up that crazy escalator. Do you remember how big that escalator was? <laughs> it was like you were on it for like two minutes. It was crazy. Um, so we get up to the top and I could see my wife, my mother, and my dad sitting in front of a, a clothing store. And thousands of people pouring out of the stadium because they're using the mall as like a seg is a, is a thoroughfare to the, to the train and seeing my mother and her like reaching out to me, like I was like a child, you know, and sobbing and my mom doing the same thing. Or, I'm sorry, my wife doing the same thing, like hugging us both and being like the most uh, I've ever cried in my life. It was, it was unfathomable. In fact, I, I opened my eyes for a brief moment and I saw, my dad sort of walking away with his head down, but seeing people who were just at the stadium, just watched it, looking at me going like, Oh shit. I think that's, I think that's the, the dude, you know, like mm-hmm. it was, it was. And then my dad came back a couple minutes later and you could tell, you know, like he like smelled like tears, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a major blur. The rest of it's a lot, you know, it, 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 I, but those moments are like really, really acute. Like I remember them vividly. 
Um, but the, you know, the rest is sort of blurry. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, a lot happened in that timeline, you know? Um, and, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy how the program shifted, took like this, it was like a paradigm shift despite not coming home with a medal. It established the Canadian relay squad, regardless of who was out there mm-hmm. is legitimate again, is, is a, is a major contender for a global medal. Yeah. Again, you know, and that was regardless how, how bad I felt and still feel to this day about that. Um, you know, the team winning a bronze in in Moscow and again in Beijing and again in Rio, I sincerely don't believe we do those things or accomplish those things as quickly as we did without what we did in London. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? So, um, for that, I'm grateful. And, and, uh, I think concluding this story was Sam F and I had lunch together in 2014, right before we departed for Glasgow. And I sort of alluded to him that I think, you know, this, I'm, I'm probably, this, this might be it for me. And uh, we, we got back talking about, about London. And he said to me something so profound, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. He said, as difficult a moment as that was for you, how much I would have taken that opportunity instead of sitting at home watching on TV, Mm. you know, Mm. I would have done anything for the opportunity, even if it meant losing a bronze medal rather than sitting at home watching on TV. Wow. Um, And, and it sort of resonated with me because in the 2014 Canadian championships was the first Canadian championships that I, I participated in that I didn't win a medal. And I, um, you know, was fifth in the hundred was running, just fair 200s that season, but I ran a really solid semifinal and uh, walked off the track and I, could, I couldn't bear any weight on my left foot. I had no idea where it came from or how it happened. And uh, I had to pull out of the final and it was, it was sort of devastating for me. Um, but that was the end. That for me, that moment in, tw- you know, in Moncton in 2014 was the end. I knew it, that, you know, not being on the podium and having Brendan Rodney, and Andre de Grasse and Aaron Brown and, yourself all these guys sort of emerging into the into that uh, role is is uh is, is the premier 200 meter sprinter in the country I, I felt like my time was probably up so it's funny because that moment that you mentioned in london i think is something that i will also never forget you know uh, as someone who was kind of just sitting back and watching a lot of what was going on to to see everybody watching shay come out of the tunnel watching justin come out of the tunnel gavin come out of the tunnel and then you come out of the tunnel. And even that moment, you know, with you, myself and, and, and Molly, I think I tried to understand, but I, I couldn't imagine what like you could have been going through. Again, you know, I saw Justin come out of the tunnel and everybody was, there were a whole bunch of emotions going on, of course. Right. And then I saw just the, I guess, dichotomy of Trinidad. They were pretty much at the edge of the tunnel, then hearing that they should go back. And then everybody just getting so excited and then them running all the way back through. Yeah, I think that that was a moment, I think, for myself too, where I was like, wow, this is something that will live with me forever. But I think mostly just because as much as, you know, sometimes things can be so great in one moment and the next moment it can be kind of taken away. I think the pain of that moment too, Jared, I'm thinking about it, was just like the buildup to that moment. Like you said, rightly said, like this was the real coming together of the team. Like Dana got real with us about the times. Mm-hmm. You know, we had that experience in Wanaheim where we just got totally destroyed. And you know, essentially the German team kind of laughing in our faces and celebrating, yeah. setting us off with fireworks. 
right? You know what I mean? It was just like all these different moments that kind of came together for this moment of total and 100% belief in what was possible for us individually and as a collective to do something. And to see that and watch that happen and also be a part of it, I mean, albeit from the, a little bit from the outside, but to still be a part of it and then watch it come together. And then the result obviously not being the result that everybody wanted. I think it spoke to me in a moment of like, you know, if you really, if you truly do believe that something is possible, right? And come together. Because just like what happened, we ran 36, 3805, right? And Dana's like, if you guys, Dana was essentially saying, if you guys were to run perfectly, each and every single one of you, this is like the yeah. fastest possible time like that you guys can do. You know what I mean? And to then go beyond that and run, I mean, obviously 37, oh, sorry, 3805 is like one 0.01 faster than 3806, yeah, but sure. still, you know what I mean? Dana laid out like, okay, Dana was essentially saying, if you, if everybody's perfect, this is possible, right? Yeah. But then saying, well, we're not all going to be perfect. So it's not technically possible, but if you guys try, <laughs> it might be, right? Sure. And yeah. so it was pretty incredible to see that happen and then to run 3807, right? So we yeah. were just like right there. I think for me, what that conversation, because I'm like a numbers guy, like I'm not an incredibly apt in, in mathematics, but uh, like, I remember numbers. I remember dates. I remember statistics, you know, probably ad nauseum to a certain degree because I can get kind of carried away talking about numbers and performances and things like that. But, you know, and I, I don't mean this disparaging against, against Dana, but for a while, we sort of perceived Dana as like a, our camera guy, you know, and <laughs> And I don't like I said like I don't I, Dana and I are pals and I, I I I trusted him with his insight and things like that. But I think that there was a narrative when he came onto the squad like don't provide because the first of all the male ego is very fragile and when it pertains to to male sprinters it's it's like a Fabergé egg you know what I'm saying like look but do not touch <laughs> and that's what his he would say show you the video and show you the time and that's it. But that simplicity in it being like about the performance and about your ability and not about the, you know, I think that there's so much placed in technique and technique and technique and take, but technique is the, the how and skill and performance is the, is the how good, you know, because we've all seen excellent technicians that don't necessarily perform real well, right? Yeah. So for him to say like, I'm going to throw at all this biomechanist, Ralph man, whatever, Put that on the table for a second. We're just going to talk about times. It doesn't matter how you do it, as long as you believe in it, as long as you do it, that's all that matters in the end of the day. And that's, you know, I think about that as a coach now. I have two absolutely brilliant and profoundly talented young ladies on, on my track team, sincerely, like the most talented athletes I, that I've ever worked with directly as a coach. And I sometimes I have to hold back and say, because they're both very, very tech, they're proficiently technical and they're both very young. Sometimes I just like give them a thumbs up and I just give them a wink and that's all they need from me, you know? Yeah. And that sort of putting, putting it back on us to say like, you can do it. Now you, now you have to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Otherwise, all this work that I've been doing and, and tabulating all your 50 meter splits and blah, 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 since 2009 is all for naught. Right. So him putting that out there for what, for us made it real. It made it tangible and it made it um, attainable. 
And I think that's all sincerely because Glenn Ray could tell us until he's blue in the face that this is what you need to do. This is how you need to do it. Blah, 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 blah. Glenn Roy, his track record, don't mind the pun, but his track record speaks for itself, right? Yeah. World champion twice, Olympic medalist, Olympic gold medalist. I think he's he three-time, four-time Olympian, 88, 92, 96, 2000. Um, it's, he's a tremendous career, but that didn't necessarily translate into immediate success as a coach, right? It took him getting through his own expectations of what he put on himself and trying to project that onto the program and having a little bit of static with respect. I'm not going to name names, but he wasn't necessarily the most popular guy in the room for his first three or four years as head coach, despite what he achieved as a, as a, as a, as an athlete, I'm experiencing, I'm kind of over that hump now, but I experienced that big time as a young coach, you know, four or five years ago, eventually you have to just let your athletes do what they're born to do, but you have to back it up with some sort of tangible number or anecdote or extrinsic cue or whatever it may be. But at the when the gun goes, Shagun, your coach is a fan. He's yeah. got a stopwatch or whatever the case is, but he can't he can't call a timeout mid race. With respect to field events, he can't go to the to the to the rail and tell you what you're doing wrong. The gun goes, man, and it's it's all you. And then trying to put that together with a relay team with four guys, four really, you know, egotistical, self-driven, intrinsically motivated people to kind of put that on the side and come together collectively. It's one of the most difficult things in sports to do, hands down, i.e. the American Relay Program. Perfect example. Case in point. Most talented program you know, obviously Jamaican, Jamaicans would beg to differ, but you could say that the Americans should win every relay race they're in or come, or come damn close to it. And they, they've proven that time and time again, that that's not, that doesn't come to fruition. Mm. Um, so for us to, to do what we did in London and then to, 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 to see this burgeoning group of young sprinters, the, the Andres and the Aarons of the world and the Brendans of the world come along. Um, and to, again, put their egos aside and put the rivalries aside and to do what they did, and particularly in Rio, you know, 30, 37, 60. I don't want to take credit for this, but there, there's so much of that I see in what we, what we achieved in 2012. It's interesting because, like, my parents, you know, came to Canada from Nigeria, right? For them, getting started in Canada wasn't the easiest thing to do in the world. And so it kind of laid the foundation for my brothers and I to start off a bit better than they did coming here. Right. And so I kind of, you know, related to that. We didn't have the, it wasn't the easiest experience because I got to see the entire thing from almost from start, not from start, but like from it coming up to 2012 to 2016 uh-huh. to, to what it is now. It's like the foundation kind of had to be broken into and mm-hmm. the base and everything had to be established. And then you know, it was, it was easier to, to kind of build upon. And yeah. part of, part of that though also takes sacrifice. I think at no matter what, and I don't want to say that four by one in, in London was the sacrifice, but I think future generations of Canadian athletes who do participate in the four by one, there's a bit of a history there of terms of like a backstory and kind of where we've come from, because I, and, and I think it's a lot easier to relate to that, even as an athlete of like, this is what happened back then. And this is what we're trying to do now. Right. Cause coming, I think, you know, coming off a championship and being like, okay, we are, we are, we are the best kind of out of, cause no, no offense to <laughs> if Glenn Rice listen to this. 
<laughs> like they kind of came out of nowhere, right? It was just like gold medal, 95, gold medal, 96, gold medal, 97, right? I mean, for sure, they, that group for sure had a lot of like, um, they had a bit of a buildup too, 93 bronze, um, yeah, sure. you know, 94, 94 gold, I believe they also won or, um, but you know, they had their own kind of buildup, right? Yeah. But I guess there wasn't real pain of something that they had being kind of taken away from them almost. Right? I, I think, I think to a certain degree though, Shagun, I think they, they probably like Bruni, Glenroy, um, Donovan for sure had to, um, exercise the demons of Ben Johnson. Right. Okay. And I think particularly like you look at 91 with Atlee Mahorn winning a bronze and you look at, you know, Bruni, I think was fourth in 91 and then in 92, um, you know, we were, we were shut out, but 93 having a, like a young hotshot group, but no Donovan. Right. So Atlee was sort of on, on his mm-hmm. way out. Okay. I can see but that. You get, you get Bruni who's, you know, like, like Ben was an immigrant to the country and, you know, the, the country really accepted him open arms, but there was still stigma. There was still, there was still residue. Mm. Okay. Even 95, the, you know, the championship they won in 95 was sort of perceived as, as they won because the Americans dropped the baton or ran out of the zone. I forget exactly what happened with the American team in 95. Uh, but 96, winning a gold in Atlanta on American soil with, you know, I, I don't necessarily say that the American team was an A team. Because there was a lot of infighting on, you know, should Carl run? He just won the gold in the, in the long jump. Should Michael Johnson run a leg? You know, Tim Montgomery was, was replaced by Mike Marsh at the last second. So there was definitely some infighting there. But the way in which the Canadians won in 96 was, like, was emphatic. Yeah. To follow, to follow that up again a year later uh, to win in, in Athens, um, they were like doing their thing, man. Three global championships in a row is, is, is remarkable. Um, 99 was, you know, was one of those, like, is this it? I think a lot of it was Donovan was recovering from the Achilles injury. He wasn't anywhere near the shape he was in, obviously two years earlier. Um, and then Bruni run 984. So they still had that, they still had that marquee name, right? You know, Bruni finishing just behind Maurice Green in the hundred meter final. The difference again, in a lot of ways is the team in London, no household names, right? Yes, yes. And Justin running 10.08 back to back, you know, that was great. But being a semifinalist at the Olympics is, is an incredible accomplishment, but it is nowhere near the accomplishment of a world record in the 100-meter final, you know, with all, with all the hysteria of the false starts from Linford. I mean, just the hype that Donovan had built up Mm. That for us, it, and particularly for me, um, but you ask like, someone like Anson Henry or Nick Macrozenaris or Pierre Brown, the ghost, I don't mean that literally, but, but figuratively the ghost of the legacy of the 96 team and particularly Don, Donovan Bailey haunted those three guys for their entire career. And it took another generation, you know, me particularly as, as a guy so that, that, that took over after the Pierre Anson Nick generation to sort of say like, listen, the ego and the individual is no more. It can't be, it, we can't rely on the individual because based on metrics, 
we're about as good as the Japanese team, but we're mm. not as good as the Trinidad team. We're not as good as the English team, probably not as good as the French team. Um, even the Dutch team with Shirani Martino, all these guys and all these teams around us had better, bigger names. And to a certain degree, that was our, that was the ace up our sleeve going into the games as 11th ranked, getting our asses kicked by the Germans blessed, you know, a week before 10 days before we went out there. The expectations was purely intrinsic was in our camp alone. Mm. And there's something profound about that, right? There's something about like, being having a fighter's chance, right? Like going in there, it's it's sort of the um, the Riddick bow, Mike Tyson. It's it's like going back to you can't win a medal if you're not in the race. And my grandfather told me one time, he's, you know, God rest his soul, is he said, "There's a reason they don't send out the medals in the mail before the race starts, right? Because all the metrics and all the predictors and all the expectations and X, Y, and Z. As soon as the gun goes, none of that matters." You got to race, right? And that's the beauty and the majesty of track and field. It throws caution to the wind as far as like the socioeconomics that that goes into a lot of sport, soccer, or or whatever the case is, these major global entities and these federations dumping money into sport uh, to produce medals. um, It doesn't necessarily come out, but you get track and field on the other hand, you have the Karani Jameses and the Kim Collinses of the world and the Kathy Freemans. And you go down the list of, you know, yeah. people like yourself, your family or, or Bruni's family, or, or, you know, any of these people who, who immigrated to the country and had to work through that, the stigma of being an immigrant or the stigma of being different, having a, a funny name or, or whatever the case is and saying like all, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know if you know how to, to, to skate or not, but you know, when you show up to Canada, like if you don't know how to skate, you're crazy, you know, there's something wrong with you. So track and field sort of attracts those types of personalities. Those people that say like, maybe I don't have all the money in the world. or don't have all the resources in the world or even a track in my instance. But if you have the will and, and, and the audacity to take on a task like that, um, when you do achieve excellence, it's just so unbelievably profound, you know? And uh, like you said, the what happened in London will will emanate through Canadian relay running for 20, 25 years. I'm certain of it. So um, it would be nice to have a medal. We would have been bumped up to silver. You know, that would have been really nice. But <laughs> um, we don't. But you know what? The legacy is, I don't want to say more important necessarily, but it means something. It's not, it's not as easily dismissed as if we had a finished fourth. You know mm. what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's good. When you look back kind of over your career and like these different moments that have happened, you know, big and small, what's, what's one big lesson that you kind of take out of your, you know, nine years training and competing? Well, I, there's, there's two things that really stick out. And one of them happened to me um, two days ago. Okay. So my son, my son, Morgan is very creative. He's very gregarious. He's very smart, um, very athletic, and he attends a STEM school, science, technology, engineering, math. And he's, he's five years old, so just put it in perspective. So each grade has identifies gifted and talented students, okay? And every grade appoints 10 gifted and talented students at a very sought-after institution. You know, DISD, Dallas Independent School District, has 
I think it's 110,000 students that attend schools in the district. It's crazy. It's, I think, the 10th biggest district in the country. So it's very competitive. So Morgan tests, and we get the results in the, in the mail, and he didn't make it. He, didn't, he wasn't accepted into the gifted and talented program. So he and I and, and, and his mother, Tamisha, and my, and my younger son, Louis, we sat in the garage, and we talked about it. And then I handed him this, this letter right, that said, you were not accepted. And I asked him to look at it and walk over to the, to the trash can here in the garage and tear it up. And we used it as motivation. Someone says you can't do it, Morgan, and you're going to put the work in and, and prove them wrong. And one day you're going to be successful. You're going to look back as a five-year-old. You're probably not going to remember, but I certainly won't forget it, that even in moments of rejection or of failure, you know, I'm using air quotes here, you can either go bury your head in the sand and go cry and woe is me, or you can use it as motivation. It's up to you, you know. And and, and that's something that I want him and my and my son Louis to 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 be motivated by. Not not to have a chip on their shoulder necessarily, but there's something in working for what you get, working for what you know, earning your keep. You know, like Maurice Green used to say, like if you want to be number one, you got to train like you're number two. You know, and that's something that sticks with me. Um, my coach, and he, uh, here's the second thing that really emanates with me, is my coach used to say, you're only as good as your next race. You could have a triumphant moment one Saturday and get your butt beat the next. So humility and the, the willingness to take one on the chin, the bravery to step up into the blocks the next weekend. Um, not everybody's cut out to do that. So it takes a unique few in, in sort of the weird idiosyncrasies of sprinters to be able to to take on that role. And, uh, and, and that, that'll stick with me forever. I think. That's like, that's very deep, but like so true. And those things like, you know, they can't be minimized in, in any way. Right. At all. 2020 is, is the perfect example of, so like one of my favorite films is, is Goodwill hunting. Right? And there's a scene Rob Williams and, and Matt Dame and their characters are sitting in a, in a therapy session and they're talking about intimacy, about relationships, you know? And he, uh, he asks, Hey, do, you, know, I, you go on your date. You were talking to him. I said, yeah, we had a great time. And he goes, did he call her back? He goes, no, I didn't call her. And Rob Williams says like, you're a freaking amateur, you know, like, what are you doing? What are you waiting on? And, and Matt Damon says, what do you want me to do? You want me to call her back and find out that she's actually kind of boring and she, you know, she's got weird habits and, and I actually, you know, she turns out not to be that interesting in the end. And he said, it's like, you never know until you give it a shot. Right. And he goes, he goes, we'll all have bad moments, but the bad moments like wake you up to the good ones you weren't paying attention to, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it's easy for us to, to roll and to feel like, you know, international superstars when we're at the big games and we're, you know, we're, we're jet setting and doing the whole thing. And it's great, you know, seeing the world, doing what you love, pursuing something that only a handful of people on earth get to get to experience. It's amazing. But 2020 is a perfect example of it. It's like all that went away. And what do you have left, right? What do you have left? A few stamps in your passport, a few bib numbers hanging from your wall. Maybe a couple dusty metals hanging in your basement somewhere, but none of that stuff really means anything, right? Mm, yeah. It's 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 the experience that got you there and the lessons that you learned to get you there that are so profound that 
um, the lesson that I learned and, and my teammates learned from London will be with us forever. And uh, I, I, there's, not a, there's not a lot of opportunities in life to have something that impacts you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And, this, and for, for me and for Gavin, Shay, Justin, yourself, you know, Ian, Akeem, um, it does. It does mean something. So um, I'm grateful for it. And, and I feel truly, and I don't use this word very often, I'm not, a, I'm not a real religious person, but I feel sincerely and truly blessed to have had the opportunity to pursue what I love to do and to be influenced by, by some really profound and wonderful people and to, to be able to, to rub elbows with some of the greatest men and women to ever walk the face of the earth in terms of track and field. It's I, from coming from PEI and, and pretty humble beginnings, I feel pretty blessed. So mm. I, I, despite not having a medal, I, I, I can't complain. It's cool. I wish you had more conversations like this when you were competing, man. This is, this is, this is awesome. This is like right up my alley, man. It's awesome. You know, it's um, like George Carlin, you know, the, the, the famed comedian said like, I love people, Shigun. I love people, but I don't love groups of people. <laughs> I don't love crowds. <laughs> it's like, you know, one person is great. And then a group of people have like armbands and, and MAGA hats and, and uh, <laughs> megaphones and stuff. You know what I'm saying? So um, these types of conversations, I don't mean, I don't mean this as sanctimonious or, or, or kind of whimsical here, but this is sort of therapeutic for me in a lot of ways. Cause I don't, I don't necessarily get to speak with someone who has, talk to talk and walk to walk. I mean, you're a little bit younger than me, but you know, we, we sort of walked and, and experienced and shared a lot of, exp a lot of races together, a lot of camps and a lot of things together. And I've always respected you as a, as a competitor and, and then your transition into the hurdles. I mean, it takes a lot of, takes a lot of balls to be able to do that, man, to get outside your comfort zone and take on, take on a new thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours. I've, I've always read it for you, you know, and, um, You've beaten me a, a, a few times and I've beaten you a fair few times, but that stuff, you know, that, that stuff is kind of, it's not that important. Yeah. What, what's important is, is that we get to share some, some, some time together and, um, and then we get to spend, you know, an hour together talking and, and uh, I really appreciate this. Yeah. Yeah. man, I, I appreciate it too. Where can people find you if they want to like contact you or get in touch with you? Cause I know um, you do have like some, I don't know if you still have your, your a coaching business too. And you also like, um, a track and field coach. So if anyone wants to get in contact with you or. So I think the easiest way to do it is, is like how, you, how you did it through Instagram um, or, you know, I just a little background, I guess is, is that I'm the head track and field and, and cross country coach at Fort Worth country day, which is prep school here in, in Texas. And um, that's my, that's my day job. And I still train athletes um, sort of on weekends and things like that. But um, but yeah, no, just my social media isn't a real big thing for me anymore, but, um, you know, certainly hit me up on an Instagram or a Facebook that, that easiest place to reach me. Awesome. Jared, again, thanks so much, man, for your time. It's, it's been so cool just to kind of catch up and sit down and kind of go back down memory lane and just, you know, talk about track and field, obviously. So, sure. uh, I appreciate your time, man. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for this uh, conversation. It was I, uh, I, you know what? This is good for me. I, I appreciate you lending an ear. It's cool. <laughs> no problem, man. Hey, thanks so much for listening. That's it for today's episode. Um, thank you for your time. I hope you guys have a great uh, day, great afternoon, great wherever and wherever you are. For more episodes or for any details about the Inner Olympian or anything like that, you can check us out on Instagram at theinnerolympian.co 
or Twitter at theinnerolympian.co once again. Um, you can also check us out at theinnerolympian.com. So that's theinnerolympian.com. Um, also, if you like the show, it would mean so much to me if you would leave a comment, leave a review, leave five stars. I'm just saying. Um, as well, if you have any questions, comments, or anything like that that you'd like to share, feel free to send a message to support at theinnerolympian.com or send me a message on you know Instagram, Facebook. Um, you know, let me know what's going on. And I'll see you guys next time. So until then, peace.